HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School, offering a holistic crop management series for farmers starting on March 23rd. Learn more at organicgrowerschool.org. This week on Meet and 3, it's the final episode of our series on global trade. We're thinking futuristically, from China's ambitious plans for a new Silk Road to the future of borders and automation. If you're a banana, you know, it's easy to cross the border. But if you're a person who's trying to follow the jobs, uh, it's a lot more difficult, if not impossible, to do so in an authorized and safe fashion. They love food trucks and they love growing your own food because these things are not dependent on essentially government systems. So there's a whole politics to pretzels on the dark web. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Keeper. And today we are going to be talking about something that very few people really spend a lot of time thinking about, and that is H-2A visas. What are H-2A visas? Well, David Bacon, a senior fellow at the Oakland Institute, a writer and photojournalist based in Oakland and Berkeley, California, is joining me today. He is an associate editor at Pacific News Service, and he writes for Truthout, The Nation, The American Prospect, The Progressive, and The San Francisco Chronicle, among other publications. He also hosts a half-hour weekly radio show on labor, immigration, and the global economy on KPFA-FM. That is a Pacifica radio station, people, in case you don't remember. Um, and he is a frequent guest on KQED-TVs this week in Northern California. David, welcome to the show. And let me start by saying that I am a Pacifica alum. I was a broadcaster on WBAI for, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 years. Yes, we're scattered throughout the media, Sc- aren't we? <laughs> now, I, as I recall, my old friend Dennis Bernstein is still doing oh, very much so. a show very for you. Much there. If you ever see him, please send him my very best. Um I, I had some very funny, memorable experiences with Dennis <laughs> way back in the day. Um, yeah. Anyway, so let's let's get right on to the topic here. We're going to talk about H-2A visas. And the H-2A visa program for people who are not familiar is basically a guest worker visa designation. Um, and David, you have recently published a report entitled Dignity or Exploitation 
What Future for Farm Worker Families in the United States. Um, you did that for the Oakland Institute. First, give us a real quick thumbnail of what the Oakland Institute is, and then uh, we'll, ju- we'll dive into the report. Sure. The Oakland Institute is a research institute in Oakland, California, and it deals with issues of uh, land rights, uh, racism, migration, um, equity, um, sp- especially the the things that are the causes of migration, the displacement of people um, in developing countries, and then what happens to people once they come to countries like the United States. Right, right. Um, I've interviewed Anurada Mittal, who I think is the executive director there a couple times, mostly about land grabbing, one of my favorite topics. Um, anyway, so let's, let's, first of all, let's explain to people, what is the H-2A visa program? Sure. Well, it's ironic that people are not familiar with it because we, um, it, the people who produce the food that we eat um, are very much affected by it, both those people who come to the U.S. as H-2A workers and, and farm workers in general. But the H-2A, H-2A is the name of a visa. And what, it really, what really happens here is that growers in the United States are able to send recruiters to countries, mostly Mexico, but some other countries as well too, especially in the Caribbean. Um, there they can contract and bring workers to the United States on this visa. And the conditions of this visa are that um, people can only come by themselves. They can't bring their families. Um, they're here just to work. So if they're not working, they have to leave. And the visa is a temporary visa. So people can only stay for the period of time that they're contracted to do this work. And they are tied to the person or the the, the grower or the labor contractor that brings them um, to the United States. So within less than a, a year's length of time, they have to leave the country and go back and then wait to come back to the United States again for another season. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I, I don't want to get into the history of it because we're a little bit pressed for time now, thanks to my Luddite problems. But um, but it, it is very similar to a program that was ended by the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, um, which was called the Bracero Program. So they, they ended that program basically because of my following question, which is that the exploitation of those workers in various forms um, was so egregious that they then passed that act in 1965. And now here we are back again. Can you describe the current conditions for H-2A visa workers? Well, they're very difficult conditions, both for those workers, um, and then also it, it has a big impact on farm workers who are not H-2A um, visa holders as well, too. But to speak of the people who who are coming to the U.S. under that visa, um The visa permits growers, for instance, to impose a production quota, which allows growers to make workers work at a very, very exhausting pace. So when you call it a work visa, that is definitely what it is for sure. It is work and work really, really hard. Um, Growers are required to provide housing. But what this really means in practice is that growers build barracks. And those barracks are generally located quite a ways away from the nearest um, city or the nearest town. So people are living in a very isolated place. Um, Sometimes those barracks are surrounded by chain link fences, in which case people, it sort of feels almost as though people are being 
um, held there. It um, sounds like it looks like a prison camp. I mean, your, re- your report actually has quite a number of photographs and you can see what these barracks look like. And it, it is it, it's no it's not like home, folks. <laughs> That's right. And, and Pretty one, other th- one other um, a- aspect of this visa, which I think it, listeners would be really interested to know, is that um, it allows growers to hire only people who are young and only men. Um, because what growers are really after is they're after people who are going to be able to really work really hard and then just send them back home when they're done. Um, that would be illegal if they were hiring people here in the United States. It would be a violation of anti-discrimination laws. You know, growers are not allowed to hire uh, to discriminate against women, for instance, or discriminate against old people if they were hiring here. But because of the conditions of this visa, um, they're allowed to do this. They're allowed to discriminate. Now, there besides the the um, the horrible housing, the substandard housing, um, which has an impact on, for example, has been severe, you know, seriously affected by COVID. Um, we're going to get to that in a minute, but that's that's one aspect of it. But there's also issues around wage theft, as I understand it, and I, I wanted you to get into that a little bit, and also. What is the what, you said a minute ago that it, it has an impact on on resident farm workers, in other words, people who who have either uh, the immigration status that allows them to stay here or they are uh, United States citizens. Why does the H2A visa affect them adversely? Well, the rules of the H2A program set a, a minimum wage for people who are brought um, into the country to do this work. And that wage is set state by state, but it's only very, very slightly higher um, than the minimum wage. And of course, we're talking about the rules. So one of the first thing to know about this program is that the rules are broken constantly, and there's virtually no enforcement by the Department of Labor that's responsible for enforcing the rules here. So this rule of the minimum wage um, is, as you might say, honored in the breach. Um, but the reason why it has an impact on on other workers is that when other workers um, are unhappy at working as hard as the Bracero program forces workers to work or want a wage increase that is substantially more, because after all, living on the minimum wage is you know virtually impossible in this country, whether you're living in a city or not. And um, the income of, of farm workers generally in this country is between about seventeen and twenty thousand dollars a year, which is not a living income for a family. So when workers try to get something better than that, then the grower can essentially say to them, "Look, you know, take what I'm offering you because if you don't, um, you can get replaced." Now, again, the rules of that program say the growers are not supposed to do this. They are supposed to offer jobs to people who are living in the U.S. first. And I, I want to make sure that listeners understand that we're talking about immigrants. Both both groups of people are immigrants, both the farm workers who are living here in the United States and the farm workers who are coming in on H-2A. So it's not sort of like... Um, you know, what it is, is is putting immigrant workers in competition with each other, really. And so this has a big impact on workers who are already here um, trying to make a living for their families because of this threat of replacement. And the number of workers, um, Katie, who came, who were brought to the United States last year was about a quarter of a million people, a lot of people, a quarter of a million people. That is 10 percent 
of all the work of all the farm workers in the United States, and that has grown um, very, very, very quickly. So it's obvious that growers are replacing the workers who are here with the um, workers that they're bringing in under this visa, even if the rules of the program say that they're not supposed to do it. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I, I couldn't quite make that, but thank you. Yes, basically, it's a lack of enforcement. In other words, it's just like these guys do whatever they want. They say, oh, yeah, of course I asked the people, you know, down the road if they wanted to work for seven twenty-five an hour. And by golly, they said no. So I'm bringing these people in. And it, presumably you can just say you're going to pay the H-2A visa workers kind of whatever you feel like. Now, is it does it happen, for instance, David, that they are given a bait and switch? Do they, because I, I have read about this and I, I wanted you to confirm it. I have read that, you know, they can be told that they're going to make $10 an hour, but then when they actually get here, no, it's not really $10. It's more like $8 an hour or, or maybe they're going to be charged, given hidden charges uh, that they weren't aware of that's going to eat into that $10 an hour. To, to, I want to talk a little bit about th- some of those inequities that happen um, so regularly with this population? Sure. Well, the, um, you know, getting charged for things that people are not supposed to be charged for is a very common experience, whether it's being charged for transportation, whether it's being, well, it's actually starts in Mexico because people have to pay bribes in order to get the visa to begin with, which again, it's illegal, but it is, is constant. Um, but once people are here, um, they're often charged for the meals that they eat, um, you know, they have no way of determining what the grower is going to provide in the way of food or how much that charge is going to be. So it's an invitation to charge too much. Um, people get charged for transportation. And then the wage cheating happens, especially on things like um, uh, peace rates, because a lot of farm labor is done, um, is paid by how much you, how much you produce. And so even though the contract that workers sign, that's another thing. So workers are given a contract when they cross the border, but very often that contract is in English and the workers are speaking Spanish. So, you know, they're told sign the contract or we're not going to put you on the bus. And so workers sign the contract, you know, only to discover that, as you say, you know, that the wages and the conditions that are specified in the contract don't match up with what workers actually find themselves working for. And then the, the, the last thing, Katie, is that, the, um, that the, what happens because of this pressure to work hard and because workers are in no position to say no is that, um, well, we had a case in the, in the report that we outlined of a guy named Ernesto Silva who got sick while he was working in a field up near the Canadian border picking blueberries. And he tried to go, go back to the barracks and the supervisor pulled him out of the barracks and said, no, you must continue um, to work. And he eventually collapsed in the field and was taken to a hospital in Seattle where he died. So, you know, th- this is really the, an example of the kind of abuse that the program sort of opens up for workers who are come here as, as part of it. And to go on a little bit uh, further about the medical um, situation, um, you know, Nearly all farm workers labor under the same terrible conditions. There's no, obviously no question about that. But um, but they, they are also similar in the sense that, for example, with the with the um, COVID epidemic or pandemic, 
Um, because they live in housing uh, that is off barracks-like, meaning that there are usually four people to a room, if it's not just a giant dormitory-type room, um, and so the and they and they are transported back and forth to their fields um, in small, you know, in buses and everything. So they have no way of social distancing. They're not given any kind of PPE, um, and that is very similar to what has happened in the meatpacking industry. And I wondered if there were if if you wanted to sort of further that parallel, or is that kind of all we need to say about it? But it does kind of sound like the same thing to me. Well, it is very similar. Um, workers who are already living here, in other words, workers who are not guest workers, um, they have to go find their own housing and they pay rent for it. And so one reason why the COVID spreads among farm workers is because with the wages as being as low as they are, people have to kind of um, double up. Uh, you know, you have a, a number of families or, or a number of people um, living in the same house, for instance. And that means that, again, it's hard for people to separate themselves and um, the COVID gets trans, um, transmitted that way. For farm workers who are H-2A workers, again, the growers have to provide the housing, but what they provide are barracks. And in those barracks, and there are photographs, as you said, of this in the in the report, um, growers, for instance, will set up a barracks in which there are four people living to a small room. Um, they're sleeping on bunk beds. In other words, one person on top of the other. And there's no way the workers are able to maintain you know, the six feet of separation that is required in order to make the transmission difficult. And then, as you say, they're taken to work on um, on buses, where, again, where the separation is very difficult. And as a result of that, we have seen concentrations of the um, coronavirus among H-2A workers, especially in Washington, where this system is really um, kind of mushrooming like crazy, um, that is taking place among workers primarily because of what is called congregate housing, which means people living in barracks in these very crowded conditions. And it is uh, similar. I mean, the meatpacking industry, only because I, I'm very familiar with the meatpacking industry, I have this weird fetish for it. But um they, uh, you know, initially when the when the pandemic first started, uh, they were offering, uh, you know, hero pay or, you know, extra pay for for showing up for shifts. And, and some workers were even given some types of medical assistance or allowed to take paid leave. That is not the case with H-2A visa workers. Is that correct? Well, H-2A workers, first of all, no, they do not receive hazard pay. So I have yet to hear of any farm workers anywhere who are getting hazard pay. In fact, you know, workers in the Apple um, Valley of Yakima, Yakima Valley in, in Washington State, which is where most of our apples come from, went on strike in the packing sheds to try and get hazard pay um, and also against the un unsafe conditions. And those were very much like um, what you see in um, meat packing in meat packing plants. But, you know, with with two and a half million million farm workers in the country, Katie, you know, obviously there, there's going to be some variation. And some growers are going to um, do things like put plastic barriers on the seat backs of the buses so that there's, you know, workers can't breathe on each other, for instance, as, as much when they're riding to and from work. But that is generally speaking pretty rare. And most farm workers live in a situation in which they have to find their own transportation to work, meaning that what's, what usually happens is that workers pay with a person that's called the raitero, meaning the person who provides the ride. And the raitero will pack a bunch of people into a car and everybody will go to the field and, and they'll work and go back into the car to go home. Well, you can imagine how, you know, how crowded that car is. So it's like the conditions of poverty also are 
part of what is causing this. And the growers' desire for a, a low wage and low costs is what is driving the H-2A program. And it is also what is driving poverty among farm workers generally. The fact that growers want the labor at a price that they want to pay, not the price that it takes for a family to lead a, de- a decent life here. Right, right. We're going to take a quick break, David. Um and uh, be right back. Uh, again, uh, we're talking about H-2A visas with David Bacon, the author of a new report from the Oakland Institute. Stay tuned for more because we're going to talk about why we're bringing so many of these people in and, and more about sort of the profit-driven um, sector of agribusiness that is uh, fomenting these conditions. So please stay tuned for that. This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School, offering a holistic crop management series for farmers starting on March 23rd. This holistic crop management curriculum and training opportunity is in partnership with Certified Naturally Grown. Growing a viable farm business is sustained by continuous learning of the land and your products. In this workshop series, growers across Southern Appalachia and beyond will gain tools to manage their crop production for whole farm success. Organic Grower School is offering the Holistic Crop Management Training as a six-part webinar series. It will include a mixture of videos, resources, and live virtual meetings between March 23rd and April 27th. Learn more, meet the instructors, and register now at organicgrowerschool.org. Okay, we're back. So you were saying that um, you made a point at the beginning of the show uh, talking about the tremendous rise in numbers of H-2A visas. And I I sort of remember seeing um, like, you know, 10 years ago, it was 10,000 workers were coming in on an H-2A visa. And this past year, it was more like, as you said, I think a quarter of a million people. So is this entirely driven by greed? (laughs) I mean... What what happened to the people who were already working here, <laughs> right? Right. Well, obviously, the people who are already working here, you know, need to work, and this program is growing at at their expense. Um, so it was, as you say, ten thousand people. Actually, nineteen ninety two, five years ago, it was about, you know, maybe. 75,000 people, but that's still, you know, in five years to have it grow to a quarter of a million people is an enormous rate of increase. And what's what's even more important is that there's no cap on it. There's no limit. So, you know, you can imagine next year it's going to be more and the year after that it's going to be more than that. So it's being driven by a combination of the greed of growers and also um, there it's driven on a policy level in Washington. You know, growers are going to Washington and they're telling um, people in Congress that they need a dependable source of labor and they need it at a, at a price that they're willing to pay. And of course, what they don't say in so many words, but everybody gets the message. And that is that they want it in a way that workers are not going to be able to organize themselves and go on strike and raise the wages, which is what happened in 1965 when the Bracero program ended. We had the great strike in Delano and the United Farm Workers and Cesar Chavez. And for a while, farm worker wages were about two to three times the minimum wage in this country. And right now, farm worker wages are the minimum wage and sometimes even less than that. 
So this is what you know growers are, are angling for. And under the Trump administration, for instance, we had um, his agriculture secretary, Sonny Perdue, say, well, OK, we need to give the growers you know, these kinds of workers because we don't want to have people who are going to have families. We don't want people who are going to settle here in the United States. We just want people who are going to come in and do the work and leave. So this is sort of an anti-family policy, Katie. And it also it also betrays what we won in the civil rights movement in 1965, which was an immigration policy that favored families. We won the family preference system, which really essentially says that people come to the United States um, because um, they have ties to family and to a community that's here, and people are petitioned and come on that basis. That was put in place by Cesar Chavez and Ernesto Galarza and Bercarona and Dolores Huerta and the other civil rights activists at that period because they wanted a system of immigration that wasn't tied to growers, that wasn't a labor supply system. And here we are sort of going back into the past because Trump, as what he, what he did when in in April last year was that he stopped all of the family migration. He stopped all the family preference system. And at the same time, he told growers, hey, bring as many H-2A workers as you want. And so that's what that's what that direction is. And we need to kind of push back in the other direction. That's why we wrote this report is to show on the one hand um, what the problems are with this H-2A program, but also to say, that we need to look at the family-based migration system that was put in pra- place by the civil rights movement and use that as the, as the direction in which we go rather than a labor supply system for growers at, at very low wages. So the, so the whole, I'm just going to drill down on this for just a second, but basically what the H-2A visa program provides uh, anti-immigrant um, leaders with is a steady supply of, of basically indentured servants, meanwhile denying access to legal immigration um, for families uh, who would normally be the people who come in and do those farm working, those farm labor jobs, right? It's, in other words, it's a, it's a way of keeping families and, and, and long-term settlement of brown people <laughs> in this country to do the work that we don't want to do, us white Anglos, um, in favor of having essentially almost a slave labor force. I mean, you know, we're not slaves. They do get paid something, but, you know, but not a lot, as you've just explained. Right. As, as, as the Southern Poverty Law Center called it in a report a few years ago, close to slavery. It's not slavery, but it, in many ways, there are certain aspects of it that are very similar. So, yeah, you, you know, you, you got it. Um, you know, the family preference system, that family migration system has been under attack from anti-immigrant parts of our government and people like growers for a long time to the point where there are parts of that system that now don't function very well. If you try to bring your married son or daughter from Mexico City or from Manila and the Philippines to the U.S. to, to unite with your family here, um, that person is going to wait 20 years for a visa. Yeah. So the, the system the system has been, I would say, the system has been sabotaged. And at the same time, you know, we have this, um, th- this enormous growth of a system that is anti-family. 
It's, it's based on supplying that labor at a cheap rate um, without any social costs. The social costs of this program are all being paid, actually, by communities in Mexico. If somebody gets sick here and they go back home with the COVID, for instance, or any other kind of illness, or they get injured at work here, they go back home to a small town in Mexico where that town has to figure out how to give them the medical care that they need in order to survive, even though what happened actually was that the person um, suffered here and basically, you know, provided their labor in a way in which the growers didn't have to pay the cost. So that's it's not a, a, a socially healthy situation here. And we need instead, we need a, a high wage program in agriculture. High wages for the people who are doing it. You know, about 95 percent of the people who do farm labor in the United States are Mexican. But, you know, if growers paid a, a living wage, a family living wage to people, um, and anybody who wanted to go and do that work could go and do that work. Actually, I think you would probably have a, a somewhat more diverse workforce, um, because after all, you know, we all have to work in order to earn a living, and some there are aspects of farm labor that actually people enjoy doing. But um, the problem is that we have a poverty-based system. That's it, and you know, we need a, a system that is a family-based system instead. That's what the report is arguing. Yeah, very much so. Fascinating. I mean, the whole the family based system. People don't think about that, but uh, including myself. I mean, I, I just find that incredible. I want to I want to touch quickly on how the how agribusiness is so uh, so ready and so and how it is so easy for them to squash organizing for better conditions or better wage or even just basic rights. Um, you know, they basically are able to shut down any efforts at unionizing. And, and that seems to be largely through the use of these H-2A visas. Can you kind of explain that little bit there for us? Because farm workers, you know, they're unionizing. Unions in general are pretty weak in this country now. So I, I kind of wanted to parse that out because I'm, I'm very pro-union. <laughs> well, H-2A workers are un- themselves, for instance, for, first of all, uniquely vulnerable. And the reason for that is that growers are legally able to fire somebody for any reason who's here on one of those visas. And when the person loses the job, they must leave the country. So basically, firing is the same as deportation. And growers are also legally permitted to have a blacklist so that somebody who gets um, fired and deported from the U.S., for instance, for protesting over the low wages or trying to organize a union. This ha- has happened because after all, you know, workers are workers. It might be, I was a union organizer for a long time. And I think workers will will organize under the enormous odds and they do, but this is what happens to them. And that is that um, the, the program permits growers to deport people and blacklist people if they try and organize a union. And so that is a heavy, heavy, heavy weapon. Um, something to hold over somebody's head. So in a way, growers, what growers also want is they want a union-free workforce. And this program is, um, you know, the the weakness that it imposes on workers um, certainly moves in that direction. But even for workers who are already here, um, you know, I have friends who, who pick strawberries in Santa Maria in California and on the Central Coast. And they say, well, you know, among workers who are living in Santa Maria, and pick strawberries, um, people are very reluctant these days to protest about 
the low peace rate the growers are offering for picking strawberries because they see around them the more and more and more H2A workers that the growers are bringing in, and they know perfectly well that they can be replaced. So, you know, it's a um, it's a barrier to workers who also want to organize the fact that growers have access to this labor force that they can put into competition with workers who are here so that if workers here try and organize, and this is what exactly what happened under the Bracero program. This is one of the big reasons why people ended that program um, in the 1960s was because growers did that and they did it very frequently. You know, workers would walk out on strike, the workers who were living here, and the growers would simply replace them with Braceros. And if the Braceros went out on strike, they were deported and the growers got a new bunch of workers. And this is kind of where we're going here with this H2A program. Right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to go here to the my last question, which was um, the way you concluded your report. And I'm going to quote from the report. The choice confronting the incoming Biden administration, therefore, is whether to expand an immigration program prioritizing grower profits over workers and immigrants rights or instead to reinforce the immigration system based on family reunification and community stability while protecting the wages, rights, health, and housing of farm workers, which was the alternative advanced by the civil rights movement over half a century ago. So, <laughs> um, clearly, <laughs> you, I mean, we should be going in that direction, but we are obviously going very as fast as we can in the opposite direction. But what I mean, if they if the Biden administration does embrace the idea of family based migration um, and, you know, supporting uh, fair wage laws and, and basically basic labor rights, just allowing people to exercise their basic rights um, in labor to fair, uh, you know, fair compensation, medical leave, uh, et cetera. Um, what, what would that mean to to our immigration policy, I guess, at large, and then also how much would it cost consumers? Because at the at the end of the day, consumers are not going to care about this if it's going to have an adverse impact on their pocketbooks. And I think that's a huge hurdle to overcome. Um, and I, I don't know how you, you know, make that make that balance work so that people will vote for better conditions for farm workers? Well, the, the second question first, that one actually is, is, is pretty easy, Katie, because, you know, those strawberry workers I was mentioning in, um, in Santa Maria, they get less than 20 cents for picking a clamshell box of strawberries. And um, that one, that clamshell box sells in the supermarket for about four bucks. So workers are getting a very tiny percentage of um, of what the retail price is. If you doubled the wage, and you know that we're a long ways away from that, but but say you doubled the piece rate that those workers are getting for picking that box of strawberries, and it added twenty cents on to the four dollars and twenty cents in the supermarket. To be honest, I don't think people would notice it because the the price of a box of strawberries goes up and down all the time in the supermarket. And, you know, I don't think that and it, the amount we're talking about is such a small part 
of what that retail price is that I don't think that it would really have an impact on consumers. Now, growers might want to use that as an excuse for saying, well, we're going to raise prices and blah, blah, blah. But that's not the problem of the workers. What we need is we need control over the food system as a whole so that we have a much more rational food system that affords a, a decent living to the workers who work in it, whether they're strawberry workers or meatpacking workers or whoever. And we don't have these huge corporations getting this rake off basically, because most of what we're paying in terms of the price of food in the supermarket is not going into the pockets of workers. It is going into these rake-offs. So that's one thing. You know, as far as Biden's choices, um, I think that Biden is actually proposing some very good things. Um, when he said that he was going to have an immigration bill that was going to offer a, a path to legal status and citizenship for those who want it to the 11 people in this country who don't have papers. Um, well, about half the farm workers in this country, about a million and a quarter people don't have papers. That would be something that would help them a great deal. So that is a very positive thing. Biden also is saying that he wants to strengthen family migration. Now, that's sort of general language. We don't really know what specifically he means by that. But if what he means is to make the system function so that people can petition and bring their family members here to the United States and get rid of that 20-year you know, backlog, that's a good thing, too. Um, the problem is that the Biden administration, I think, and, and Democrats in Congress, not just Republicans, but Democrats in Congress, my own senator here in California, Diane Feinstein, is a great example of it, are very, they listen very closely to what growers want. And so when growers say, oh, but we want more H-2A workers, you know, then the first thing you hear in Congress is somebody standing up and saying, oh, there's a labor shortage. There's not enough workers. We have to give growers these workers at these low prices. Um, that's what I'm afraid of coming from Biden, is that there's going to be this sort of effort to sort of placate growers, who, after all, I don't think he should have any reason for doing that, because growers were almost 100% for Trump. So yes. he doesn't know him anything. <laughs> but, but, you know, I'm just looking at political realities in Washington. I think that we have to pay real close attention to this one and make sure that we are not being presented with a trade-off that says, oh, you can have legal status and, oh, we'll make the family system function, but you have to give growers these guest workers that they want. Right. I think that's a bad deal. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a terrible deal. Well, it's I mean, it is astonishing that, um, you know, just to kind of wrap this up like this, you know, you you are highlighting farm workers. Um, I have done many, many programs around meat packers or, you know, process workers. And then there's also the dairy sector, which, again, is largely uh, fed by Mexican and Central American workers. I mean, this it, this every single section of our food system from the ground up, and that includes the restaurant workers, that includes you know anybody who works in a food manufacturing plant, food processing plant, they're all screwed in the same way, and it's you know it's just the um, it is such a giant vessel to sort of try to turn direction on. I I, I really I, I've well, been doing this for it, years, but yeah, go ahead. What what I think it also says, Katie, is that that our immigration policy and our immigration system. And our labor law system and the labor situation of workers is very, very tightly tied together in this country. You know, we can have an immigration policy that turns workers 
into more prisoners than they are already of this very unjust system, or we can have an immigration system that doesn't make them vulnerable so that workers then can then go out and do what workers normally do, which is organize unions and push for higher wages. So we need you know, some labor changes too. You know, we need a, a decent labor law instead of the one. And after all, remember, farm workers were taken out of the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act, when it was passed in the 1930s. So, you know, that's just one, indi- that's one indication of the racism. Farm workers and domestic workers both. And that was because of the Dixiecrats, the Southern lobby that said that we don't want to give any labor rights to you know, Mexicans and black people working in the fields are, are cleaning and washing the dishes and taking care of our kids at home. And so both of them were, were written out of that act. So we kind of need to tie this immigration system and the racism that, you know, after all, when, when we really think about it, you know, the first people who were brought to this country to do farm labor um, were slaves who were kidnapped in Africa and, and put to work on plantations. So this system is a very old one. And, you know, we need to sort of change its direction so that it's one that benefits workers and communities instead of those people who simply put that labor to work. That's right. Absolutely. Well, it's it's a fascinating and gigantic, complex topic. Um, I have always said that the reason we haven't had meaningful immigration re- reform in the past 25 years is basically because of industry pressure. They don't want to pay. They just don't want to pay. They want the big profits. And, you know, too bad for everybody else. But uh, it has torn apart the whole rural fabric of our country. And, um, you know, I, it's, I, I wish more people were, were plugged in, um, as you are, to, uh, to address these and to explain so well, as you have today, um, what, what really needs to happen here and, and how we as citizens can, can try to push that forward as we pay attention to what our legislators are doing. So, um, David, thank you so much. Tell people where they can learn more about you and your work. Because um, we have to let Amanda go right away, and um, and then we will say goodbye. Sure, you can get a copy of the report by going to the website of the Oakland Institute. So that's www.oaklandinstitute.org, and from there, um, there are links to my other work on other subjects as well too. That's great. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Sorry for the late start, and uh, we'll send you a link right away. And and thanks to my listeners and my sponsor. See you next week, folks. I really appreciate you tuning in. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please, Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.